Well, here we are. First week of March, no baseball still. Jeremy's here, Randall's here. This is episode number 58 of Behind the Yellow Line, or Chicago Cubs podcast. And bad news, baseball fans, we didn't know going into the weekend was something going to get resolved. Some false hope out there Monday night, but Randall, here we are, first week of March. No deal in sight, opening day officially delayed at this point. Yeah, you know, I I don't like being the stone pessimist, at least outward facing. At at no point did I ever feel like there was any chance of getting a deal done. And that was before a reporter who shall go unnamed did his world famous jinx and basically killed the entire prospect. Jeremy's been saying all along, you've been saying all along, I've been saying all along, the owners are willing to kill this game in order to keep a little bit more money. And they showed it this week. Yeah, it's disappointing. I I agree with Randall there that uh, they they've shown their true colors. I think uh, I don't think they really, really have any interest in playing April baseball games, to be honest. I think that I mean, let's not forget last year. And this was actually reminded to me. Um, they tried to delay the season last year. They wanted to push it back a That's month. Right. That was a big I, I, I honestly don't think they care about April baseball because it's just you know, a loser for them. Nobody goes to April baseball games. Nobody wants, it's, you know, so I think now they have an opportunity to, you know, try to get out of some April games and they're looking to take it. And I think that's disappointing. I think it's frustrating. It seems like we have an ownership group that doesn't actually care about playing baseball games. And that's, that's super frustrating. And so, you know, I, I, there's a deal to be made. It's not that big. They're the two sides aren't that far apart. It's just ridiculous that like, it seems like the owners aren't willing to even make that extra step. And this, if we think about it, this is the third straight opportunity to agree on something that the players and owners did not take. They could not really agree on how to start the shortened season in 2020. Ultimately the league had to impose something and the players decided to agree to that. Jeremy, you just pointed out that they wanted to delay the start of last season and they couldn't come to any kind of agreement on that. They've, this is the third opportunity where the two sides could come together and say, Hey, we've agreed on a set of uh, a set of rules unilaterally and they simply did not do it. And again, there was, there was simply no point during these negotiations where I felt like, any kind of deal was close because the only people saying that there was any kind of a deal were close are the people who shouldn't be allowed to report in the first place. Cause they're just so shit at their jobs. Randall going for Bob Nightingale there from USA. And today. I'm going, and I'm going for Heyman too, because okay. he was trying to push this narrative on the part of the league that the tone had changed and he was all too happy to take, to do his usual, take his text messages from the owners and just broadcast them without the slightest bit of critical thought. And he was one of the lead people pushing this narrative that the tone had changed and the the two sides were close and the players had to come out and say that nothing had really changed and that the league was doing this as a ploy using their very willing puppets so that when nothing got done, they could turn it back and blame the players. So I'm I'm, I'm going after Nightingale and I'm going after Heyman here, both of you. Well, it's definitely misleading to fans that don't know otherwise, right? Yeah, you see them, you go, okay, this person is a reporter. Oh, wow, they work for MLB, Major League Baseball Network. They must be legitimate, right? They're pawns, they're shills. Nobody likes shills, you know? They're, they're entertainers. They're certainly not journalists. And at the end of the day, they're doing public relations for Major League Baseball, and it muddies the water because people who don't know any better see that and absorb it and think, oh, this is a national journalist. They're so good they work for the team or they work for the league. So it's unfortunate. I bought into it. Monday night, stayed up late. I'm like, hey, I think this thing's getting worked out. We have a group text with four or five of us. And I said it. And Randall's like, damn it, Ronan, here comes the jinx. You're messing this up. 
by the time we got a couple hours into Tuesday, everything dissolved. And it's like, wow, this really isn't going to be happening. And we lost a Cubs Cardinals home opener at Wrigley Field. Like what's better than that? After a long winter, all the nonsense we've been dealing with the last couple of years here, Wrigley Field, Cubs Cardinals, like, let's go do it. What a loss for us to not have that. Who knows? We would not have an opening day till the middle of June at this point. I would like to point out, though, you were talking to uh, Bob Nightingale and, as Randall says, John Heyman. Uh, I would say that, though, the two biggest probable, uh, probably the two biggest Major League Baseball reporters, I think have been pretty fair and pretty right on the money, being Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan, who have, have taken, you know, I've Ken Rosenthal has gone out of his way to take shots at Rob Manfred now, I feel like. And Jeff Passan wrote a pretty scathing article the other day. And going after a guy online, David Sampson, who just, you know, I thought that was pretty hilarious, where Jeff Passan was just tweeting at him saying, hey, show, show us the receipts. You know, if you have all the knowledge, tell us what, what the facts are. And so I, I would like to give those guys some credit. Those are, you know, yeah. the, probably the top two baseball reporters, and they've been extremely well prepared and extreme they they've known what they know what they're doing absolutely for as much as i have zero use for Heyman and nightingale rosenthal and passen are generally the top two like you said and rosenthal at that is generally one of the most measured voices in the national baseball media sure he got his he was released from mlb network for criticizing them whatever but he yeah. will generally not go in too hard on the league when they are at fault he wrote a scathing a scathing article a scathing editorial earlier this week explaining how the league is at fault here. When Ken Rosenthal is willing to go in on you like that and to whatever extent he goes in on anybody, cause he's very measured, but to whatever, when you lose Ken Rosenthal, you're in the wrong, you know, Jeff Passan, he's, he's terminally online. He'll go after people, but when you've lost Rosenthal, you've lost the plot. It's, it's frustrating. And I don't know what to feel here more. Am I, it's like, I'm going back and forth between being pissed off about what's happening right now. Just being sad that there isn't going to be baseball here at the end of the month. I was walking around Coors Field today, looking at the ballpark going, man, I'm so eager to get back in there and just see some games and home runs and double plays. So I'm kind of going back and forth on that. Like some minutes I'm really pissed off. And the other time it's just like, this really sucks. And this isn't necessary. What, what bugs me about this is it took a month and a half for the first offer after the lockout was initiated, 70 some days for a second offer. And then just the last like 72 hours leading up to this deadline of the end of the month. Now, now they want to meet for 12, 15 hours a day, all manufactured by the owners. It's just, it's really crappy for us. And there's a lot of good people who need these games, ballpark attendants, parking people, businesses in the area. These teams got a ton of public funding to build a lot of these ballparks. And a lot of local businesses took risks trying to open up and sustain themselves. And they're getting screwed by this. I, I don't like it. So I think I'm more angry than sad, but I go back and forth. Well, me personally, I'm I'm angry. I, I was like, I'm not sad at all because I'm angry because this whole thing is just pure bullshit. There's no reason for any of it. Um, as you said, this is all the owners. First of all, this whole deadline business is bullshit. There's no reason why they couldn't be negotiating now. I mean, the players said like the, the owners made it clear this is their best offer or whatever. Like there's nothing left to discuss. So they have their deadline. We're we were going home, but that's bullshit. The lockout in general is bullshit. There's no reason why this couldn't be played. This, first of all, I, I just want to be like clear here. I, I think we have to be careful. And we've talked about a lot about like taking 
uh, ownership, their propaganda, just kind of internalizing it and speaking it because it's very subtle. Like they'll say things that, and we take it like almost as fact, but it's not fact. It's, it's bullshit. Like the idea of a deadline where there had to be this deadline to play games. Rob Manfred the other day said like, Oh, we need 23 days for a ramp up to play games. No player has ever said they need <laughs> a certain amount of days for a ramp up. None have ever said that. And I've seen others dispute that. I mean, players dispute it in general and saying, hey, like, we can get ready to play games. We want to play games. So, like, it's all just an excuse for them to cancel games in, in, in April. That's And it makes me extremely mad because there, I, Manfred's, Manfred's press conference was just total bullshit. Like, he basically just lied his way through an entire press conference. And, he's, and I don't get mad about the smiling and everything because I think he's just an awkward dude. But like it just it just so tone deaf and as asinine and like even though we all like don't believe him, we still kind of internalize the things he says and repeat them. And I just want to be clear, like basically everything that man says is bullshit. As as the opening statement in my cousin Vinny, when he argued, he goes, everything that man just said is bullshit. Thank you. That's how <laughs> I feel about Rob Manfred. Yeah, and you know, you you guys say you're both angry. I'm I'm numb at this point because at, at no point during this offseason have I felt like they were going to get something done. And I feel like in that regard, I can't possibly be disappointed because I did not expect that they would come to any kind of agreement. And it's a terrible feeling. And before we go any further, Ronan, you touched on this briefly, but there are people whose livelihoods are going to be upended. Ballpark employees, concessions employees, security, ushers, these are people who depend on a full home schedule to make what is often a living wage for them. They couldn't do it at all in 2020. Uh, their ability to do so in 2021 wasn't necessarily impeded. You still had fans uh, in ballparks, but this is their second season in three years where they are not going to get a full year's worth of home, home games and get paid for that. And these are the people who are going to be left behind even after the players and the owners come to an agreement at some point. And it, it's unfortunate for these people too. And I hope that, I, I don't anticipate that, but I hope that their owners, the teams find some way to take care of these people. And I'm sure they won't, but I hope they do. And, and I just want to say like, and I agree with you, Randall, like, you know, I, I as we've mentioned before, like, at some point, some of these, you know, because these ballparks were built, a lot of them were built by, you know, public funds and stuff like that. They should go after Major League Baseball a little bit and take, uh, you know, their shots, you know, a couple lawsuits or whatever. But what I was going to say before, like, part of why I'm so mad as well is they did all that negotiating up to the fake deadline or whatever. Then they made the players made an offer and then the owners made their best offer or whatever. And their best offer was not a change. It, it was literally a slap in the face. It was the same offer, basically, as their previous offer. They didn't change the CBT at all. And if they would have gone up a little bit on the CBT, I really think the players would have taken it. I think they would have taken it. I think if they would have like met the midway point on what the CBT was, and maybe a little bit more in the pre-arbitration pool, because I think the minimum salary they probably would have taken. I think they would have taken it. And they just, it just seemed clear to me, like there was no attempt. There was, they don't want to play baseball because they made no attempt to even get to that midpoint that the, and I think, and what Jason Hayward wrote on Instagram, 
I think was exactly right. I think the owners have a set amount of number of games they want to play, and they're going to try to do everything they can to get to that set number because they don't want to play April baseball games because those are just probably debt to them. It's just probably a loss to them, and now they have an excuse not to play it. And I'm, I'm almost afraid that, like, every five years it's going to be the same deal, and anytime something comes up, it's like they're going to look for an excuse not to play April baseball games or to, to minimize the season. And I, I think it's asinine because I, I think there was a deal to be made. And they did. The players came so far from their original. It would have been a bad deal for the players. Any deal they would have made, and I think it was there. And the owners just didn't even attempt. They literally slapped the players in the face with their final best offer, and that's what makes me so mad. It's like it was there, and they just they chose not to. Well, whether or not it's a debt to the owners, it's a loss of income for all of the players if no games are being played. So they're going to feel it uh, in their own ways, right? Some players are making a lot of money. Some are making, relatively speaking, not so much money to be playing baseball, but they're all going to be in a spot that they're not going to have money coming in. And it's just really very frustrating because what it's all really boils down to is you are a billionaire You've got this asset that's extremely profitable. It goes up in valuation every year. You've got huge benefits in your community and all of these things that come from owning a baseball team. And you can't give us a baseball game here at the end of March. Like of all of the things in the world that go on, you you can't just make sure that games are played. It's really insulting that at the end of the day, these people who get the honor of owning these, how fun would it be to own a major league baseball team and your entire life is trying to win World Series championships and make more money than you could ever possibly imagine, both of which are possible. It must be the best job in the world and we don't have games coming at the end of March. It's just, it's ridiculously insulting. That's why it's a lockout because the owners have locked the gates and then they are looking around going, who could have possibly done this? And I just can't imagine having any sympathy for the owners and, and both sides in this. And what can we do, right? So you as a fan, you don't renew your subscription to MLB TV. You hold off in your MILB subscription. Okay. You don't go to the team store and you don't buy stuff. You don't go to fanatics.com. Sure. But when these games start, we got to go back to these assholes. I got to give more money to Dick Monfort because I want to go to the ballpark and see, you know, Charlie Blackman or whatever's going on for the Rockies next year. They stick it to us there too. And you know, when you go back to the ballpark, any perceived money lost from these owners, we are going to feel a good chunk of it. Those beers start breaking out to twenties. You start buying individual beers at the ballpark. It's just, what can you do? I can't walk away from baseball. Right. Owners know that. Give us some games here for, you know, for goodness sake. Give That's what they're games. banking on. Um, of course, I, you know, you we're not going to leave. We're it's not going to leave. Conspiracy, Jeremy, to build yeah. up MILB TV subscriptions, build up these new minor league systems and these indie balls because it's going to be all these stories of summer. Screw Major League Baseball. Go see these affiliated independent leagues. They get super popular. Major League Baseball knows us idiots are going to be back at the ballpark the first day those gates are open. Big time conspiracy, Randall. Yeah. I was sorry, but I was going to say something. But, uh, well, that's why they took over baseball, obviously. Minor League Baseball is part of that conspiracy. But I, I do, I would like to point out earlier, you said the players aren't getting paid. Um, they do have a stipend coming from Major League Baseball. I mean, they're not getting paid. It's nowhere close to their actual contracts. 
but they do have a stipend from major league baseball that's like being going to be paid. I think like the first of every month. And yesterday was the first uh, time they got paid from it. There's like a war trust. And I think it, it's, it's supposedly going to last them like 18 months. They've been planning for this for a couple of years, knowing that this is coming, putting some money away. And it's probably going to end up being like $90,000 to every player, which obviously in the grand scheme of things of their contracts is a small amount, but to most normal humans, that's a lot of money. So they do are getting some money coming in. And, and that's good because there's a lot of players who are going to depend on that money, who, who don't, who don't have multi-million dollar contracts to their name and a lot of money in the bank. And that's very important. And that is my continuing hope that, the players and the individuals who are lower on the rungs of the ladder right here. I hope that there is some way for them to get taken care of as this lockout continues. It's not just the players. It's not just the owners. It's not even just us, the fans who are being shut out. It's people who depend on baseball for their livelihood and they, they are being left behind and they will be left behind no matter how this lockout ends. What really sucks is for the guys on the 40 man that like have never even been major league, like your Nelson Velasquez or whatever. Guys, you know, those guys aren't all going to be allowed to play in minor league baseball games. So that's that's a big loss for them, like for development, for a lot of guys, you know, or guys that were just on the cusp of making the majors. Like, that sucks. I mean, I'm glad Brendan Davidson get put on a 40 man because we can go out and watch him. But for those types of guys, that that's going to be a huge loss. Big time. Big time. And it's just sad. There's a lot of careers that are going to be messed up by this. Even a guy like Nico Horner who just can't get a full season or a normal spring training. This is a critical juncture in his career and multiple years now he's been impacted by various things. So it's funky and it's completely unnecessary. They should be playing spring training games right now. We should be talking about the most recent free agent signing. There should be baseball in three weeks, but here we are. Mike Trout, the best player in the game will likely go three straight seasons without a full year in his prime, in his physical prime, his late twenties, will go the shortened 2020 season, injury-shortened 2021 season, and now whatever 2022 ends up being. The best player in the game is going to be kept off the field for a full 162-game season, 155, whatever you think he'd play. He's going to be kept off the field for a full season for the third straight season. That's the kind of damage this game is doing. Yeah, How about and this? as I said before. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. This whole, this whole... This whole thing is just so maddening to me because the deal is there. It's it's to be made. It's not really even an argument over that much. Now, now, like the fact that there aren't going to be games the first week of April, like maybe the players regroup and say, hey, maybe we should actually take a stand and push for something more. I don't know. But like based on the player's final offer and based on the final offer, of the, like this deal could get done next week. Like that, it should. It should still be. Like, there's no reason to cancel games or delay games, and there's no reason to have a fucking lockout. It just makes me so mad. I'm yeah. so angry about it because it's it's not like 94 or other previous ones where, like, the owners are trying. This is just owners being, like, they don't want to play the games. That's literally all it is. Not fun. Not fun for any of us. How about this? It's 2022, and there's national media and fans that are now part of the conversation because that's how things are these days that – this myth of small market teams continues to exist out there. And people are talking about places like Miami or Tampa. Tampa's a top 15 market. In no universe is Tampa St. Pete a small market. And yet national reporters bring that narrative. How can a team in Miami compete with a team in New York? You're talking about Miami. It's one of the biggest cities in the country. 
It's utterly ridiculous that here we are all these years later, those early PR campaigns from owners going back to the 90s really instilled this myth that's strong and powerful here 30 years later. Yeah, uh, you're right. Bud Selig basically like invented the concept of a small market. Max Scherzer, who brought this up, was that the San Diego Padres have a higher payroll than the New York Yankees. And that that's pretty ridiculous. I mean, you're looking at San Diego, they consider it to be a small market team, right? That's what fans would or the ownerships or whoever claims it out there. You know, San Diego's a pretty big city. I think it's actually like the ninth biggest city in the country. But, you know, it would be small market. And they have a bigger mar- they have a bigger payroll than the Yankees. Like these teams can pay uh, if what they want. All these owners are billionaires. Like I, I pointed out before, but in the like, like in the 1999, the Cleveland Indians had the fourth highest payroll in baseball. Then the Dolans came in in the year 2000, bought the team, haven't haven't spent any money since for the most part. I mean, they've had a couple years where they were competitive and but whatever. They were fourth highest Cleveland. Other teams, Pittsburgh used to spend other teams used to spend. They could spend. They choose not to spend and they don't. And the problem is these small, small market owners in quotes. It's not just that they don't want to spend. They don't want anybody else to spend. And I think they're the ones driving this whole lockout to begin with, because I think most of the big market teams are fine, like moving forward. I think it's the smaller ones that just don't want anybody to spend. They want caps on everything. And that's essentially why we have a luxury tax, because the, the league, for whatever reason, wanted a mechanism for penalizing teams who were willing to go out there and spend. So they decided to put in that mechanism and say, if you spend X amount, we're going to tax you Y amount on what you just spent. It, you know, it doesn't function as a cap, but in a lot of ways it does, because it gives other owners an excuse to not go out there and spend. And I'm stating the obvious a little bit here, but there's a direct through line, you said, from this notion of the small market team perpetrated by the owners of these teams to the notion of the lockout perpetrated by the same people who are locking the players out. There's a direct line from point A to point B here of people perpetuating a notion for the sole purpose of maintaining their own wealth. But, uh, New York yeah. Yankees, 2021 payroll, $207 million. New York Yankees, 2005 payroll, $207 million. Think of how much money the New York Yankees have made from 2005 to 2021 new Yankee stadium got built and tons of public money involved in the construction of that billion plus dollar facility. They've got all of the revenue sharing, the launching of their TV network, uh, all the MLB advanced media profits that have come in in that time. The payroll has not changed from 2005 to 2021. It's insulting. The Yankees used to be the team that spent all the money to try to win championships. They don't even do that anymore. It's, it's just it's how much money are the Yankees making in a given year? It's absurd. So much. I I, I wish I, I, you know, their revenues have gone up like crazy. They still spend obviously a lot. They still spend more than 95% of teams, but their percentage of spending to revenues has gone down a ton over time. They used to spend so much more of a percentage of the revenues. Now, some of that obviously is the fact that, you know, George would spend a little bit more than Hale does, you know, for some reason, the, the children aren't are as big spenders. But for the first 10 years of the luxury tax, when it was put in 2002, it's, it, it went up 50%. So it actually, it grew. It grew at a decent rate. The last 10 years, it's gone up 18%. And, and that's, that can't be it. Like, even Scherzer, when he said, you know, the look, I think it was Scherzer, the luxury tax was put in to discourage runaway spending, which, okay, fine. I kind of understand that in the late 90s, the Yankees were winning every 
championship. You know, I, they weren't necessarily winning it because they had such high payrolls, but that was the point. Then over the last 10 years, it's not only just the fact that it hasn't grown, which is a huge deal. Like it doesn't grow anymore. They put in harsher and harsher penalties. The taxes have gotten a, a lot higher. The, you know, the overages, like they have the different thresholds. And then at a certain point you get, ta- you you could get like tax 95% of the overage, which is insane. So even like teams like the Yankees, and they don't want to go over that because the taxes are just insane. And some of the, you know, I think there's, there were some draft, there's obviously was drafted compensation and signing certain free agents. So like the penalties are just so high that teams treat it like a hard cap. And that's, what's ridiculous. So it's a combination of the penalties and it's a combination of the, there's no growth in the CBT. It hasn't grown over the last 10 years. And so the whole that whole system needs to be, you know, completely refigured. Again, that's that's what I was saying. That's what the luxury tax has become. It's become a, an umbrella. It's become a shield for teams not wanting to spend because they have this built-in excuse now. They have this excuse where they can say we'd spend the money, but we're going to get taxed on it too heavily. And again, it's, it's all a matter of billionaires not wanting to spend the money that they've already spent on major league ball clubs and wanting to hang on to that little tiny sliver of their wealth in the name of goodness knows what it's all about billionaires lying to us. Ultimately, (laughs) I I, I would argue that's the root. I would argue that's the root of a lot of things, but the root of this very specific general specific problem that we are discussing right now. And, and, and one other thing is, I think it's also important that we mentioned. um, And one of the reasons why I think that, you know, the players are really fighting for younger players to get higher minimum salaries, to get more into arbitration, to get more, you know, pre-arbitration bonus uh, bonuses is because it's not just the competitive balance test, which I think is the main driver and all the penalties, but there was, you know, as front offices became, uh, let's say smarter, you know, better at evaluating talent, better at roster construction, you know, more people having their input, not just like a couple general like a general manager and assistant gm and a couple people in the room uh they start realizing that like you know valuing young players is better it's better to have young players who are tend to be better players on smaller contracts uh under control than you know signing a a mid-tier veteran who's a free agent and they just completely killed the mid-tier you know veteran market and like fans are I mean, we're not guilty because we're not the ones doing it, but we're guilty of like rooting for it as well. Like, you know, like, oh, that contract, it doesn't make sense to sign that player to that contract. It's too much money for him because, you know, we have this younger guy who's cheap, like that whole mindset. And I, it's not, it, it's smarter. And obviously it's better at winning games, but it has, has the effect unintended or intended or unintended of driving spending down and driving salaries down. And I think that's, uh, it's smart for the players to focus on younger players because it used to be you 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 pay your six year dues right whatever and then you got paid in free agency and now that's not happening as much for a variety of factors and so it's smart for them to focus on you know we got to get these younger guys money because that's what the teams value and so if they're valuing this then they need to get paid more. Well, this stinks. We want games. We want to be able to enjoy it. There's so much, just so much talent. In Major League Baseball right now, and talent coming from all over the world, star Japanese players, guys from Canada, guys from Latin America, all across the United States, doing incredible things. We're seeing defensive plays just consistently, these incredible defensive efforts and home runs, all that good stuff. 
like every relief pitcher is dominant now, which is completely different. I mean, look back at box scores of some Cubs teams from 20 years ago. It's like, yikes, some of these guys that were pitching. Now everybody's got three or four guys throwing 100. It's a bummer that we're missing out on this. Uh, enough with the owners, though. Like, well, I, let me let me backtrack. One question, yes or no. This gets worked out by the time we talk next week. No. Uh, okay. No, I'm not gonna, even a little not bit. Happen. We got a long and I'm an go. optimist. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a pessimist. When the optimist and the pessimist both agree, it's not a good sign. Because I really think there's a deal to be made. I just I, – I think the owners just really pissed off the players. So I don't know if the players are, like, eager to make a deal right now, even as much as they want to go playing. You get the sense this is going to be a prolonged absence here. So – uh, we'll see. See where it goes. Let's do a quick brain exercise. Some happier memories with regards to Major League Baseball. Want to put you both on the spot. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. I wanted to get it in the moment. What came to you both here? Think of a Major League player who had a long career, whether or not they're a Hall of Famer or just a very good player we've seen in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, give me that player and your memory of them on a team that they're basically otherwise not associated with. So a guy who had a long career and then spent one year in Minnesota at the end of his career, it's like, oh, yeah, that guy played there. Randall, you're raising your hand. You have a player in mind who kind of had that one year that sticks out like a sore thumb at the end of their career. I do, and it's funny you mentioned playing in Minnesota at the end of his career because I'm thinking Jim Tomei, who, of okay. course, had his long career with Cleveland, with Philadelphia, sometime with the White Sox. Then he bounced around a little bit at the end of his career. Minnesota, the Dodgers, very briefly, the Orioles. Does anyone remember Jim Tomey as an Oriole? I do, but I'm yeah. uniquely damaged in that regard. Uh, so I'll go with Jim Tomey <laughs> and his his late career kind of bounce around journeyman. Sure, that's a good one. Jeremy, yeah. you got anyone on, in your mind? Yeah, you know, I it, yeah, I got a lot. I kind of have a, a few on my mind, but uh, I guess I'll just go with, you know, uh, I'm going to go with Manny Ramirez just that one month or so he played for the White Sox. Yeah. And then also playing for Tampa. I feel like those were like a couple just weird random stops on the Manny Ramirez train. So I'm going to go with Manny Ramirez, the White Sox. In the, in the wide spectrum of remembering some guys, you could probably spend hours picking out notable ball players who had long careers with one team or two teams and then you, you show him a photo, show, show a photo of him in some weird uniform with some weird expansion team or some, I, we don't want to say small market team. We just spent half an hour debunking that myth, but with some, some team you don't associate him with. And you're like, when did he, when did he play there? Like Vlad Guerrero as an Oriole. Again, we could, we could do this for hours. I feel like, and it's, there's no reason, you know, to believe it to be true, but I feel like the White Sox have like a disproportionate amount of like guys like that. Absolutely. You know, Manny Ramirez, Ken Griffey Jr. You go back in like the eighties, you get Steve Carlton and uh, Tom Seaver, uh, just like the White Sox just feel, I mean, they had the whole nineties Indians like eventually played for the White Sox at one point. So like, I just feel like they have random guys all the time playing for the White Sox. There are teams I tend to think of as having some some great players to their name, but also being teams that a lot of great players kind of passed through between point A and point B. I think of the Orioles as being a team like that. I think of the Texas Rangers as being a team like that. And I think of the White Sox as being a team like that. The White Sox are a highway from one destination to the other. Well, I, I, Andrew Jones, uh, he played for, you know, White Sox. I think he might have played for a couple of those teams you just mentioned. Uh, and so, like, that's a guy. It just seems like there's always a guy you know, on the White Sox, it's like, oh, yeah, that's 
that's weird that he ended up on. I mean, Kevin Euclid. Why was Kevin Euclid on the White Sox? Who knows? <laughs> the thing that sort of triggered this for me and got the idea in my head was I saw a picture today of 45-year-old San Francisco Giants relief pitcher Randy Johnson. And I went, man, all the teams Randy Johnson played for, San Francisco Giants, 2009. He finished two games that year for the San Francisco Giants. You think about the long, illustrious Hall of Fame career for Randy Johnson. Giants, not the team that comes to mind first. Not, not the team that comes to mind first, though I do recall him playing for the Giants. Didn't he get his 300 win as a Giant? I feel like that happened. Uh, also a Yankee. Like, nobody thinks of Randy Johnson as a Yankee. Well, I remember Randy Johnson as a Yankee in part because he didn't he shove a photographer or did do something like that. He didn't he didn't Dennis Rodman a photographer, but he definitely had some kind of altercation. So I remember him with the Yankees because that's where the D-backs traded him to. And, I, you know, I don't know that I would have remembered Randy Johnson as a giant had you not just mentioned it. Like if you had asked me cold, who did Randy, Randy Johnson play for? The Mariners would have come to mind. The D-backs would have come to mind. The Yankees would have come to mind. If I'd really focused, I probably well, would have remembered. There's a worse answer in there, too. You're he omitting. came up with, I would have remembered, he came up with the Expos. Yeah, it's been a go. brief time with No, the that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the well, Yeah, Houston I was about Astros. to say. He spent, spent a brief time, brief time with the Astros. I don't know that I would have remembered cold that he finished his career with the Giants. I don't know that I would have remembered that. 300th win, I'm pretty sure, was with the Giants. And I remember him getting the yeah, 300th no, win. No, it is, because he... He finished with 303, and he had yeah. eight wins in his age 45 season. Uh, 22 games, 17 starts, two finishes, and 86 strikeouts to bring things home. Amazing career, all that, but just one of those guys. Um, anybody that comes to mind that was a Cub in that regard, like a Jim Edmonds or somebody similar to that? Yeah. Like Jeremy Burnett's for me. I'm always like, why sure. is Jeremy? Just remembering Jeremy Burnett's as a Cub, like one year, because I remember him so much in Milwaukee. And then like, oh, yeah, he was on the Cubs for one year. Jason you know, Kendall. Jason Kendall. Yeah. The, the Cubs have had some guys like that kind of pass through on their way out. Joe as Nathan. long as I have yeah, Joe Nathan, Joe Nathan, Joel, Joel Peralta, who, who certainly did not make his, his big league bones as a member of the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. There have been some guys to, uh, to flame out with the Cubs at the tail end. I guess you could think of Brandon Morrow as being a guy like that. You know, he made his big league name with the, the Jays and the Dodgers. He pitched his, one of his half season as a cub i guess so he was very oh, good yeah. for that half season and then he, he was very good it was fun to watch for that half season then he he hurt himself putting on a pair of pants and it was all downhill from oh there. i got one brett anderson your favorite Oof, brett anderson yeah sure he counts well getting some short here on time two things we wanted to finish on Baseball in Chicago. So we're not going to have the Cubs. Randall, I'm sorry to say this. No White Sox baseball starting on time here on the south side. So you're not going to be able to enjoy that. But lots of baseball happening in the Chicago area. Randall, you put together a little list here for folks that want to see baseball, but don't get to Wrigley or Sox Park. What are the options here? Well, Ronan, I was fortunate to come across this great website on the wide internet. Listeners can go to, and write this down, listeners, map dot baseball mapper that's baseball m-a-p-p-e-r.com all one string and it will show you a map of the united states with minor league independent and collegiate summer league teams uh whose games you can go visit to, to scratch that baseball itch to get your fix so i'll give you I'm, i won't give you all the teams here but i did run these down south bend south bend cubs only 89 miles from chicago it's less than a two-hour drive and these are all mapped from downtown chicago so wherever you may be listening from you can adjust accordingly 
Iowa Cubs, a little a little out of the viewing area, but it's only a five-hour drive. It's only 334 miles, and the Iowa Cubs could very well be the best game in town, figuratively speaking. Independent teams, Chicago is kind of rich with them. The Chicago Dogs in Rosemont, the Schaumburg Boomers, uh, the Kane County Cougars, a former affiliated team and a former Cubs affiliate out there in Geneva, out by where our good friend Ryan lives with his wonderful family. You have the Windy City Thunderbolts who play in Crestwood and the Joliet Slammers, just in case you really want to go to Joliet. Um, and if you do, good luck with that. And then finally, the last group here, and this is a very interesting group that I think more people should go to. Ronan shaking his no, head at me. No knocking Joliet. Okay, I, I won't good knock Joliet. Good people in Joliet. Things to do. I'll get, I'll get Jake and Elwood Blues coming after me. I think the Roundhouse is in Joliet. Sure, I'll take your word for that. Uh, there are some collegiate summer league teams within a relatively short drive from downtown Chicago. And for our listeners who are not aware of these, these are like college prospect leagues. They are generally wood bat leagues. And these are where college baseball players who probably aren't playing a full season into the college world series. That's Jeremy's territory. They go to these teams to get their at bats, to get their innings in and often to get themselves in front of scouts. And the fun thing about these teams is they will play on some really, really small fields. Ronan, we've been to some collegiate summer league games. Yeah, okay. And yes, the, the, the former Lexington Snipes, who yeah, I looked wow. up last night, they are sadly no longer a thing. They played their games on what was basically a, a community little league field with some bleachers and uh, a tent, basically. But you can go see the Joliet Generals, who despite their name, they play at Wheaton College. And then if you feel like traveling into Northwest Indiana in what I assume is Whiting, maybe it's Whitting, I'm not sure. There's the Northwest Indiana Oilmen. Uh, in Hammond, the wonderful town of Hammond has the Southland Vikings, and then a team that I believe is just nascent this year. They have a great name, a great logo. If you want to drive to Crown Point, Indiana, there are the Lake County Corn Dogs, and sure enough, their logo is a corn dog wearing a hat, a baseball jersey, and swinging a bat. And corn dogs happen to be one of my kryptonites. I am I am a sucker for corn dogs. Maybe not driving to Northwest Indiana <laughs> for one, but I do like me some corn dogs. So if you've got a baseball fix that you need to that you, that you need to, to fill this year, you have options. And I've been to more than a few Chicago Dogs games. That's a nice enough ballpark. You get in real cheap. Parking is cheap. If you drive a Hyundai, parking is free. Maybe that helps some of our people out there. Go out there to Rosemont by the airport, by 294, by the entertainment district. Watch yourself an independent team and uh, get yourself in there. Get yourself some food. Get in and out for $30, $40 for a, a whole family. You could do worse. And that's probably going to be the theme of, you know, getting your baseball fixed the next couple of months is you could do worse. It's not the most optimistic outlook. But again, if you need baseball, there is baseball to be watched. Well, I appreciate that, Randall. You've taken the time and putting that together. Lots of good names in there. I misspoke too. Roundhouse is in Aurora, Ooh. not Joliet. So here I am vouching for Joliet, mooching off Aurora. Not the case, but Joliet, Slammers, nice ballpark down there for them. Randall, I think there's a couple other minor league teams in the area worth noting as well. If you want to take a little bit of a road trip, Indiana's got some great ballparks. Uh, Indianapolis, of course, AAA ball, Fort Wayne, nice ballpark they've got. If you want to stay in the Illinois area, get down to Peoria. Cut on over to the Quad Cities. You can go up to Wisconsin, Appleton, Beloit, multiple places to take in baseball games. So lots of options. And if you want to drive a little bit further, you get the places like Nashville into the mix. And why not? Spend a couple of days in Nashville, see some AAA ball. Could be a future Major League City. So lots of options. And that's great. But I want Major League Baseball. And I suspect minor league tourism is probably going to uh, go up in frequency at a lot of these ballparks because 
all of these minor league teams and especially the affiliated minor league teams, not just the independent ones, they're going to be pushing this hard. And you saw it all this week, South Bend, Iowa, all of them were putting out emails and advertisements specifically targeting the Chicago area saying, Hey, we're playing a full schedule. Come out and see us. I know South Bend in particular is pushing that real hard. And if you have a chance to go to South Bend, again, it's not that bad of a drive. You just go under the lake and then you head straight East. It's not that bad of a drive. It's a lovely ballpark. Um, and go see, you have the benefit of seeing, you know, minor league players who could factor in, in a few years. So I, I very much recommend going out there to see the South Bend Cubs. Great experience. Go do it. If you have a, a Saturday to burn, if you have a Saturday night to burn, I recommend it. Yeah, and, and, and just to add, uh, well, first of all, I, I know in Wisconsin has a collegiate, uh, summer league as well in the Northwoods league. And I believe there's a team in Kenosha, um, and, and maybe even one in Northern Milwaukee area, Madison, um, and also like not just, you know, summer league teams, but uh, college baseball in general, like, you know, that is, uh, you know, Big Ten has some decent teams uh, this year. Obviously, you can see them in Evanston and Northwestern, although boo Northwestern. But like, you know, you, there's a lot of local college college teams. So you don't just have to wait for the summer to start. You could also go now in March. Uh, you know, home games are going to start playing in late March and, and April. And those college teams are going to be around. Hard to find a better view at a college baseball game than UIC. If you haven't seen it, look up the view above home plate, out to the outfield. Curtis striking backdrop. Just awesome. And it makes you go, damn it, White Sox. You really messed up with that ballpark on the south side. But very cool. That's something I've never done that. Never been to a UIC baseball game. It's on the list, though. I'd like to check that out at some point. It looks like a nice day, to nice ballpark to see a game in. And very cool. Curtis Granderson donated all that for the yeah. ballpark. Totally. Um, but let's get Major League Baseball back. Come on. Even though Dick Montfort's going to get my money, I want to see games here at Coors Field and all the excitement of getting back out to the ballpark. Uh, let's end with this. This is podcast number 58 of Behind the Yellow Line. There have been some players over the years, not too many, that have worn number 58, but a very important Chicago Cub wore number 58, Giovanni Soto, the first number, if I'm saying that correctly, Randall, when he was a Chicago Cub, 58, Gio. Certainly a fan favorite from our lifetime. Absolutely. Giovanni Soto had cups of coffee with the 2005, 2006, and 2007 Cubs before he became the full-time catcher wearing number 18 in 2008. So that'll be, and you know, Soto had himself a nice little run, a short run, but a nice little run as a Cub. He had a Rookie of the Year award to his name. He had a decent year the following year in 2009. So Giovanni Soto, a nice little piece of Cubs history, uh, came up wearing that number 58. And it's funny because... Uh, Jason Kendall was wearing number 18 when in Kendall's brief time, we mentioned him in our segment earlier, Kendall's brief time as a Cub in 2007. I was very happy to see Giovanni Soto take that number 18 the following year because he was on pace to become a big part of that ball club. And he did. And I didn't, I didn't want to see the starting catcher out there in number 58. That's not a starting catcher number. He, I said, go get him a real number. He took number 18. I was very happy. Seems like we're going to, you know, probably some relief pitchers in the next few numbers, but like there's going to be starting to run out pitchers. some guys, you know, like number 58, that's what five, six, seven guys on the list. And I had a couple of them are coaches. So it's not, these are, we're getting with some uh, non-common numbers here. Uh, we're moving on up in the world, I guess. I mean, Mark, Mike Borsello took this number for half for over half the last decade. Jeremy, you're, you're not wrong. It is only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people in the entire history of the Cubs wearing uniform numbers. Well, that goes back 90 years now. 
to have worn number 58. And that does include coaches. So yeah, these, these segments are going to get a little thinner as we go on, but because these are the numbers that aren't worn particularly often, we're going to get some really, really good names, some quality remembering some guys coming up, but you are correct. Just to give you some comparison, you go down to a number, even like 43, which I don't think of as being a particularly distinguished number. If you look at this website, and by the way, this is cubsbythenumbers.com run, of course, by Casey Ignarski, who does all this hard work. If you look at the entry for a number, even like 43, there are eight and a half, eight and a half lines of players to have worn 43 over the years. We go down to 58. There's not even eight individuals to have eight individuals to have worn the number. So it's going to get a little thin from here on. 59 has some names and there's going to be some fun names in the low 60s, but you're not wrong. It's going to thin out pretty quickly. Ronan, as a connoisseur of the 1998 Cubs, yeah. what do you remember about Richard Barker? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Zero. He's a ghost. I, it's like you want, want some Richard Barker facts? I Apparently. do. I have no idea who this guy is. Did I? Did it, oh, 99. Excuse me. I was... I was thinking about, I'll give you some Richard Barker facts. I meant to say Ben Van Ryan, but Richard Barker had a 7.2 ERA in five games in 1999. He pitched five innings and he finished one game. So there you go. Not very good. But I remember, I meant to ask, what do you remember about Ben Van Ryan? Absolutely nothing. Okay. So <laughs> I don't remember anything about Ben Van Ryan either. And apparently I'm, ha- oh, here we go. I, I, I did find his reference page and he, Pitched in nine games for the 98 Cubs. He oh. actually pitched for three teams in 1998. And he, two games finished with a 3.38 ERA. And Not 1998 bad. was the final year of his career. He pitched in 25 games that year. His only other time in the majors was in 1996 when he, he pitched in one game. So for Ben who? Van Ryan, don't know who you are. Didn't really make an impact, but you did pitch for a playoff team in 1998. And you were signed by the Cubs as a free agent on in, during the offseason, and on May 5th, you were traded to the San Diego Padres for Don Wengert, who I also don't oh, remember. Yeah. Who? What was the other major league team he played for? Was it San Diego? He played for San Diego. He played for Toronto in 98. And oh. then in 96, he played for the California Angels. Wow. Well, hey, he made it. A couple years in the show. I remember nothing about that guy. Next week's going to be fun. I will give this hint, not that many players have worn number 59 for the Cubs. We're talking blisters next week. That's coming up for certain. That's a big clue with one of the Cubs that wore number 59. Randall, you're looking a little bit uh, googly-eyed at me there. I think this one maybe got past you. Jeremy, I trust you know who I'm referring to. But we'll let that suspense play out next week. Number 59, looking forward to it for Jeremy and Randall. Come on, owners. Give us some baseball. We'll try it again next week. We'll see where things are at. 